So what I'd like to uh, talk about this morning is a theme that in Pali is called mana papancha. It's often translated as the conceit of self. It could also be translated more widely as the story we tell about ourselves. Now, many of you I know through having sat retreats will be very familiar with this Pali word, papancha. And again, it's not a word that translates so easily into English. But it essentially describes the mind's storytelling capacity, the proliferation of streams of thought that are based upon certain attitudes, certain tendencies, and confusion. And the way that those streams of thought distort again and again our capacity to see things as they actually are. Now, you may not be so familiar with the word papancha, but I think you will certainly be quite familiar with the experience of it, the proliferation, the thought loops that go round and round, the ongoing commentary about ourselves, about life, about other people that we engage in. So I always think that if there's one word in Pali it's useful to remember, it's this one. kind of rolls off the tongue, you know, papancha. It actually makes it sound really rather romantic, actually. Um... We see the stories that we tell, or find, feel that we tell, have particular emotional themes. There is the theme of anxiety, agitation, worry, rehearsing, a future that hasn't arrived, the sometimes unnecessary plannings and fretting might be about what other people think about us, In truth, these kind of anxiety themes can seize upon almost anything. And I know many of you bring it up when you come for interviews, when you sit outside waiting. So this kind of anxiety about what to say, to say the right thing. There's a version based papancha. We think a lot about the things we don't like, the people we don't like, the people who may have injured us what we can't accept, the irritations that can plague our day. And we have one or two often quite critical or judgmental stories about ourselves. There is, again, craving-based papancha, the stories about lunch, the kind of meditation experience we think we deserve, the fantasies that construct the perfect moment we would like to experience, And there is view or opinion-based papancha, and we can have one or two views circling around too. Now, what we do see is how the most innocent contact with a sight, a sound, a body sensation can trigger this waterfall of thought, of commentary, of imagining, of explaining. And we don't always mind it. You know, some of it seems kind of benign. I mean, we could even enjoy spending 45 minutes in a 
rather juicy fantasy or plan feels a lot more interesting than just the breath or the body. But it's not always benign because we see it's exactly the same process that can turn into painful, tormented, obsessive thinking that doesn't stop, that feels to grip it. What we really need to acknowledge is, of course, a papancha is a habit. It is a tendency, and it's a tendency that doesn't have any conscience. We should never deceive ourselves into believing that we can playfully engage into little fantasies and about another person or about our next holiday and then imagine that we're going to be able to politely say no to the more obsessive thinking that can start. Sometimes people regard this kind of storytelling as something of a nuisance to concentrate our way out of. But in reality, papanchi is not something to be overcome. It is something to be understood. Because this tendency of papancha teaches us much about suffering and the causes of suffering. The lessons of ending suffering really lie within the understanding of papancha. It teaches us much about how a feeling, a felt sense of imprisonment can happen and how we hold the keys of freedom in our hands. Papancha in its deepest sense really teaches us the way that our personal world, our personal reality is being constructed and created and fabricated on a moment-to-moment level. And understanding this is in the service of finding our way out of the fabrications, out of the constructions, to align our hearts and our minds with the essential truths of each moment. Because this is where we find peace. This is where we find freedom. The Buddha suggested that the mind that is lost in papancha, lost in fabrications, is always in a state of agitation, a state of irritation. We need to check that out in our own experience. The Buddha also suggested that the mind that obsesses becomes agitated and the mind that's agitated is far from freedom. And the mind that doesn't obsess, and be aware he used the word obsession somewhat differently than we do, having the same thought more than once, that the mind that doesn't obsess doesn't become agitated and the mind that's not agitated is close to freedom. Now, this morning I want to speak about a particular dimension of papancha, which is often quite close to our hearts. And this is mana papancha, the story of ourselves, the story of who I am. It is a very central thread of all papancha. We could say that all the other forms of papancha are really rooted in this one core papancha, of the story of who I am. In a way, it's what holds together our story of life, our story of the world. Now, it's important to understand that we could expend a whole lot of energy in calming the other stories, our story about this, that, and the other. 
I mean, sometimes just being able to walk into the dining room without it becoming a major event seems like quite an achievement. And it is, it is. Um, sometimes it seems like being able to sit beside our restless neighbor without that turning into a hog construction would, is a great step forward, and it is. It is never a wasted effort to learn to calm the agitation any moment can hold. Yet, if we leave this fundamental papancha, the story of me uninvestigated, um, we're actually still having the fertile ground existing in which all other agitations can begin to take root once more. When we look back on our thought streams, maybe today, maybe yesterday, without any kind of embarrassment or judgment, we get a sense of how many of our thought streams are about who. Well, they're often about me. I used to be, I'd like to be, I want, I need, I don't want. The thoughts about my body, my mind, my emotions, the thoughts about my meditation, my plans, my judgments. Now, some of these agitations are just very, very momentary. They're just like sparks from a fire that appear and then they just <laughs> fade away. But some of these thought streams, you've probably noticed, have a very, very familiar history. It's almost as if we go through life carrying within us our own museums where we have the rooms of our childhood and the rooms of our injuries and the rooms of our judgments and the rooms of our fantasies about who we would like to be. And this is where the repetitive circles, the circles of thinking, obsession, preoccupation, mana, papancha. A lot of this, you know, often the way this is translated is the thought streams that are always trying to position ourselves in relationship to others, that I'm better than another, or I'm worse than another, or I'm the same as another person, generally with me at the center. But underlying all of these papanches, we see a kind of ideology, a belief of I am this is me, this is belonging to me, the underlying beliefs that are really the centrality of selfing. Now, much of the Buddhist teaching life was spent in questioning this prevailing belief system of an eternal essence, an eternal self. The teaching of non-self or not-self was one of the most radical and the liberating of all of his teachings. What the Buddha suggested is that if we look carefully and deeply into our own experience, our own body-mind process, that we may very well discover <coughs> that there is no driver at the controls that there is no pilot in the cockpit, that there is no one who is abiding, unchanging, independent. 
we maybe even begin to see clearly and deeply for ourselves that it's not even us who are telling the story about who we are. Rather, the story, the manapapancha, the proliferation of distorted thinking, is telling us who we are. This is such a shift in perspective. It's a very, very important one to explore in your own experience. To question the centrality of me and whether that is really something of an optical illusion. It's like the sun, you know, when we look at the movement of the sun, it looks like it's going around the earth, doesn't it? It rises over there, sets over there, comes up, it goes down, it looks like we're standing still in the middle of that. Now, we know that that is an optical illusion. And the idea of the centrality of self is very akin to that optical illusion. This idea that somehow we stand central and the world revolves and orbits around this independent, essential me. I want to go back to this reflection for a moment about whether I am telling the story of who I am or whether the story of the moment is telling me who I am. If you think of a simple example, you might come into the hall and, and, and maybe the sitting is not going quite the way you wanted it to or expected it to. The calm and the happiness of a couple of hours ago may be replaced by the achy knee or the irritated and unsettled mind. And notice how the story can begin. What happened? You know, what did I do wrong? I was calm. I'm never going to be calm again. I'm obviously no good at this. I'm worse than everybody else. And we start to write our meditative future. You know, that I will probably always be agitated. You know, I will probably always be um, unsettled. Essentially, I'm, I'm inadequate. Now, am I telling the story of who I am in that moment? Or is the story that is generated actually telling me who I am in that moment? Creating a description, creating a definition, creating an image... You might go into the dining room and the person you've been sitting across from all month suddenly has moved. And at first you might be a little bemused and then you're a little shocked, you know. You kind of thought you had a good thing going together, you know. And, uh, you know, and... The thoughts begin, you know, maybe I've offended them, you know, maybe they dislike my table manners, you know, maybe they found a better companion to eat with, maybe they dislike me. And then we go into the whole historical rejections that we've experienced in our whole life. And the future, this is mana papancha, creating, the story creating a sense of me in the moment. It also creates a sense of time and continuity that I was, I am now, I will be. That I used to be, therefore I am, and that is my future. This, This illusion is very compelling 
behind everything we experience, every event that occurs, we have this sense of I am, the continuity of self. Now, if we're able to stand still for a moment, and it is so important as we're doing here to be able to stand still and to step out of the perpetual agitations of trying to fix and improve and overcome and get rid of ourselves, what we actually see is a universe of process and conditions. We see this very in a very obvious way in the world around us. Process and conditions. The day turns into night, the earth perpetually orbits, spring turns into summer and winter, the flowers bloom and they fade and they bloom again. We see our loved ones and our difficult people pass through those same seasons. The sense of appearing and passing thoughts that runs through our consciousness, the past appearing in our consciousness, nothing that we can see in the universe is standing still. Nothing is static. In fact, we could describe life as process. The end of process for us is the end of our life. We see this in our emotional world, sadness turning into happiness, happiness turning into irritation, resistance into compassion, process pervading all perceptions, all experience, all sights, thoughts, sounds, mind, life is movement, it is change. But we also see the world of conditions. Like the kaleidoscopes we had as children where you would turn the kaleidoscope and the different shapes would come together to form one pattern and then another pattern. We see today we have sun. Certain conditions have come together for that to be so. We might have rain tomorrow. We have the conditions that come together for our lunch to appear. Life is our life is a record of conditions that have merged together to create particular experiences to create me. We may or may not have had a loving family, a good education. We inherit generational patterns of aversion or fear. These are the conditions of the moment, and in a sense, we are a child of the conditions of the moment. Life, as we know it, is this matrix of conditions. There's no helplessness within that, because what you see here in a retreat situation is that we cultivate other conditions that are born, brought into this matrix. The conditions of compassion, of investigation, of calmness, of spaciousness, which have their own impact upon the conditions of the moment. Now, the extraordinary piece in this, because what we do see in our life is this interface of process and conditions, moment to moment. Now, the extraordinary piece in this is that we imagine in this world of process and conditions that I alone, myself, somehow is exempt. 
stands outside of it, substantial, in control. It's hardly a logical thought, is it? And it's not a logical thought. It is a belief system. It is called what the Buddha described as the conceit of self, the delusion of an independent, separate self. Now, when we look at the idea of self through the same eyes of insight that we would look at the world of process of conditions, what would this do to us? Because, you know, we see in our, not only in our culture, but always also inwardly, this ongoing pressure to be a self, this ongoing encouragement to be someone. We might begin to see the terrible suffering that orbits around this ideology of self, the blame, the fear, the rage, the judgment, the loneliness. Now, what the Buddha encouraged is actually, is can we entertain the possibility that the idea of self is also a matrix of process and conditions? To understand Self is a verb and not a noun. So we're not in search of no self, but to understand this process of selfing. To understand how the selfing of the moment is being shaped by the story, by the feelings, by the emotions, by the experiences of contentment or agitation or peace or boredom or anger. Notice how the selfing of the moment shapes around different thoughts and plans, irritation, wanting. When what we do see is that when the emotions or thoughts that arise are more unskillful, irritation, judgment, blame. If you also notice how the story of self is much louder and much bigger in those moments. Have you noticed when there are more wholesome and skillful qualities present, calmness, spaciousness, ease, generosity, do you notice how the voice, the story of selfing, gets much quieter? we might not even notice we're even there until there's craving to keep that quietness and to keep that stillness. Then you see the voice get big again. You know, I want this. I want to keep this. I want more calm. Notice when the compassion, the kindness is present, it's almost as if no one's home until ownership begins. Now, of course, what the Buddha taught is that the idea of self is a construction and a fabrication of the moment. It's a process. It is a process that is coexisting with another process. So selfing and clinging or identifying are part and parcel of exactly the same process. They are not separate. It's not that I cling. It is that clinging turns process into a noun. Clinging turns conditions into nouns. 
Clinging is the process of isolating something in the flow of perceptions, the flow of phenomena, and turning it into something that is seems to be static. So what what where does clinging manifest? Certainly in relationship to the body, to sensations, appearance, illness, pain. But the body is a process. But when something is isolated, we through clinging we feel the surging of selfing. I'm old, I'm ill, I'm in pain, I'm suffering. The story of Manapapancha has fuel to perpetuate it and continue it. We might there might be clinging to a particular feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, turning it into me. I feel good. I feel bad. I feel sad. I feel happy. Clinging goes to volitions, intentions. I need to fix, to do. Consciousness can certainly be clung to. I am my thoughts. Now with each moment of selfing and clinging, there is contractedness and there is agitation. The view of self becomes a solidity. And in that contractedness and clinging, what is interesting to see, there is a quality of amnesia in self-view. If I'm sad, I have completely forgotten the happy self of an hour ago. So I never existed. If I cling, if there's clinging to a plan, I've complete, there's complete forgetfulness about the calmness and the confidence of being with what is. Now, myself is actually the story that keeps telling us who we are, how we are. Now, the Buddha never encouraged any effort to negate or suppress this, but it's remembering that the third noble truth of awakening is not the noble truth of no self. It is the noble truth of ending suffering born of distortion and confusion, born of investigating what is really wrong view, the view of I am. Buddhists encouraged us to envisage a way of being in which clinging has no foothold, in which contractedness has no foothold, in which there is no belief in an abiding, independent self-existence. Encouraged us to envisage, really, the joy and the happiness and the freedom of that way of being, and we glimpse those moments. Perhaps we are not a continuous, unified, single entity. doesn't mean we are nothing. We breathe, we get up in the morning, we live our lives in the most meaningful way we can, and we begin to see process and conditions with grace and compassion. And that world of process of conditions is a world that we are part of not standing outside of, not observing, not even a unified observer. This mana papancha, the story of selfing, keeps the illusion of separation of me going. This is what we're invited to examine, what we're invited to question. Who am I? 
We see the story of the past being told, all our autobiographical events. Some neuroscientists will suggest that really the idea of who I am in this moment is really no more than a collection of memories. It is the story of what is clung to. Now, every moment of that movement to cling, to isolate, is actually a movement of misaligning ourselves between the way things actually are, which is process, fluid, change, unfolding, conditions coming together in particular shapes and forms and events. Now, what clinging is doing, of course, is an endeavor to make that process stand still, to create the illusion of something being fixed, and that's where we find ourselves in trouble. Struggling, narrating, explaining, reacting. So how do we understand the freedom of non-self? The freedom of no longer being bound by mana papancha. Well, first we calm down, slow down the internal process, and then perhaps we begin to question our fascination our enchantment with the stories that are told about the world, about I am. We start to calm the thinking, seeing that too as a process, also subject to conditions. We cultivate our capacity to see in our practice in our lives this movement from contractedness to openness, from openness back to contractedness, we begin to see how the shaping of the selfing of the moment is also the shaping of the world of the moment. And we start to have a little bit of creative disbelief. A little bit of creative disbelief that perhaps our story is not the whole truth. Perhaps it simply is this process and conditions coming together and then being taken hold of. We don't say to ourselves, I need to let go. This to me is a kind of contradiction in terms. What we do see is the cultivation of the conditions that allow that questioning and investigation to really happen. And when we do that, perhaps we begin to say, we are probably always a little bit less and a little bit more than we ever thought we were. We cannot be described by any story that is clung to, that I'm not this unchanging center, that I'm, but we're also a little bit more. I'm not just the sum of my parts, not just the sum of my memories. We see the less in terms of, you know, this too, this self we call ourselves, this bundle of aggregates, feels a little bit less than I am great or I'm a meditator. But we're always also a little bit more. As the Buddha suggested in this world of 10,000 joys and sorrows, it's also 10,000 stories of joy and sorrow that present in each life the only life that we can live. And within that life, there is sadness, there is grief, there is happiness, there is delight. But there is also the capacity for great compassion, for great kindness, for a great sense of inner freedom. To read you a little piece um, I found in a book 
by Paul Brooks, who's a neuropsychologist who's really spent his professional life trying to find a self in his patients. And he talks about his encounter with a 17-year-old boy who suffered a catastrophic brain injury after falling down an empty lift lift shaft. And he saw that the surgeons had done everything they could to piece him together, that there was much that would never be repaired. He said when he looked at this boy, he saw the teen's face worked relentlessly, writhing with anger and dread. He would growl and sometimes howl, but was incapable of speech. He sat contorted in his wheelchair, limbs twitching, a stream of saliva dribbling from the corner of his mouth. And Paul Bach said, I felt pity for him, but also revulsion. I found him grotesque. Then I began to imagine what might remain of a self. I began to doubt there was anything at all going on behind that face. He should be allowed to die, I thought, and not just for his own sake. How did he look to his mother? Could she even bear to look? Then one day I happened to be around when his mother came to visit. I watched as she cradled his broken head in her arms. For the time that she was with him, but not much longer, an extraordinary transformation came over his face. It became still. The rage subsided. He seemed to regain his humanity. Here were two selves, not just a mother and a broken son. The whole was greater than the sum of the parts. You see, as human beings, we have a remarkable capacity to inhabit a very narrow world of self defined by clinging to the parts. And as human beings, we also have a remarkable capacity for empathy and compassion, for freedom that is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think when the Buddha talks about the third noble truth of suffering, it's actually knowing that, actually knowing that deeply and clearly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.